to Season 3, Episode 1 of Viking Story. My name is Alan Laycock-Fuchs, and you're listening to an accompanying podcast to a novel that I've written, which is set in the Viking Age, and this podcast is a vehicle that I use to explore topics related to my novel and related to the Viking Age in general. Can't believe we're already into Season 3. This is uh, quite amazing, actually. And uh, this season, we're going to continue to follow my publishing journey, but one of the... I guess most requested topics that I've received um, is to do an episode or or more about the gods. So uh, a lot of you listeners are interested in the gods. Believe me, when it comes to the gods, there are there's so much information that I will do some episodes this season. You'll see it. It's probably already in your your podcast uh, list. So I will touch on some of the most important gods, but. Even then, I'm really just going to be scratching the surface. So hopefully I'll give you some, some interesting insights, some information you've never heard before. But yeah, this is a big topic to undertake. Uh, but yeah, that's what we're, we're going to do. And obviously in the past, I've already talked about Norse cosmology. Um, today, I'm going to talk about its creation. So I think before I get into the individual gods, or at least some of them, um, I think it's good to give just sort of a general grounding of How did we get to where we are? How was the Norse universe cosmology? How was, how was everything created? Where did the world come from that mankind inhabit? Where did the gods come from? Where did everything come from? So to talk about the creation, we, we really have to thank a man named Snorri Stutlitzen. And uh, he wrote something in the 13th century called the Prose Edda. And this was basically a collection of traditions that uh, went back generations, centuries, but thank goodness for us that he wrote it down because this knowledge was known at the time, obviously, but it was sort of disappearing. And if he hadn't have written it down, we would have lost so much more. So a lot of the source material for the Norse creation comes from Snorri Sturluson. He was an Icelandic historian. He lived in the 12th and 13th centuries. He was a very prominent person in Iceland. He was also the law speaker at the Althing. And yeah, he wrote the Prose Edda, also in the 13th century. And right after the prologue, the first sort of chapter is a chapter called Gilfaginning. And this sort of chapter is about a Swedish king named King Gilfi. And King Gilfi is basically on a quest for knowledge, and he travels to satisfy his thirst for knowledge, and he comes across Odin. And he doesn't actually know he's speaking to Odin. Uh, Odin is in disguise, but basically the entire chapter is a literary tool to document the creation of Norse cosmology. And the way it's kind of structured is King Gilfi asks questions and Odin answers. And in this way, the reader can also learn about the creation of Norse cosmology. So how does it all start? Well, there's two places. There's Niflheim, which is a very cold place in the north, and I've described it before. Um, It's one of the nine worlds of Norse mythology. There's another place called Muspelheim, and I don't believe I did include it in my nine worlds when I talked in a previous episode about that. The nine worlds, anyways, themselves are somewhat disputed. It's, it's often said that there are nine, but you can count definitely more than nine. Uh, Muspelheim, for me, it's not really an important world. It only is important in the story of creation, and it becomes important in Ragnarach, sort of at the end of time. So it's, it's important for the beginning and end of the story, but not really much in between. Uh, but just to give you an idea of what it's like, 
It's a very hot place, lots of fire, burning. Uh, Sutar lives there. He's someone I've talked about in a previous episode as well. Uh, his name literally means black, and the idea is that he was charred from head to toe. And he's this being that lives in Muspelheim. He's got a sword that's also on fire, and uh, Muspelheim is just not a not a great place. Full of volcanoes, lava, fire, everything that you can imagine. Uh, it's got a very low rating on TripAdvisor. Niflheim, on the other hand, is cold, and it's full of ice, and uh, yeah, it's a very dark place. And there's an area between these two worlds, so these worlds sort of existed since the, the beginning of time, and between them is just a great nothingness. And at one point, the sparks and embers from Muspelheim come into contact with some of the frost from Niflheim, and from this the first being of the world is created. And this is uh, someone called Ymer. And uh, what I find interesting is you would think the first being that's created in the universe would be a god. But actually, not only is Ymer not a god, but he's kind of the antithesis of a god. He's he's actually a Jotun. So I've, I've also talked about Jotunar in the past. Sometimes they're called Jotunheimmenner. But basically a Jotun... It's often translated as a giant in English, and it's, it is true that they can be large sometimes, but they were very magical, they were shapeshifters, they weren't necessarily giants as we would think of them. Um, in many respects, they were on the same level as a god, but in the Norse sagas, Norse mythology, the Jotunheimmenner or the Jotna, they're always the antagonists, I would say. Even though some of them are good, Generally speaking, they're the antagonists. Just as the gods, sometimes they're bad or they, they do wrong things, but they're generally speaking the protagonists. So, yeah, it's the, the yin and the yang. Um, Yimar is one of these Jotun, and he's not a god. He's one of these more or less evil creatures. Yimar, he, he exists at this point, and he starts to sweat a little bit, eventually from his left hand, a man and a woman are sweated out of his body. And this is sort of the start of mankind. These are the proto-people. Um, also, Yimar's feet, uh, they give birth to another Jotun. And this is sort of the beginning of the race of the Jotna. There's also a cow. And it always makes me laugh because in, in a lot of academic reports and, and, and journals and, and, and readings, this cow is always called the proto-cow, which is... Accurate, that's what it is, but it just makes me laugh. So this cow's name is Auth Umla, and the cow sort of sustains Ymer with its milk, and the cow also sustains itself by licking some of the ice uh, nearby. This is apparently salty ice, and uh, one day Auth Umla uncovers or licks the ice and, and reveals a man. But what's interesting is that this man is not part of mankind. This is this is a man, but he's somehow different from uh, the man and the woman that were sweated out of Ymer's body. Uh, this man, his name is Buri, and don't ask me how, but he has a son named Bor. And what I find interesting here is that we've sort of gone back to the beginning of time, and in the in this timeline, we've already gone at this point like two or three generations, and we still haven't got to the creation of any gods. So I just find that kind of interesting. But um, yeah, Buri's son Bor marries Besla, and 
where Besla came from, a little bit difficult to say. Uh, she could be, you know, at this point, we're already now three or four generations into the timeline. Besla could be descended from the proto-man and woman, so she could be a, a member of the human race. But her father is named Bulthorn, and he's a Jotun, so she's definitely at least partially uh, belonging to the race of Jotun, if not fully. Anyways, Bor and Besla have three children, uh, three boys. They're named Odin, Vili, and Ve. And finally here, with Odin, we get the first god. So this is where the beginning of the race of gods uh, sort of begins. And Odin and his brothers, they kill Ymir because he belongs to the Jotna and he's essentially evil. But also, this act of killing him, it's not actually deemed like... Uh, an evil act, or it's not bad in any way, it's not even really judged, it's just it was necessary to happen, and with Ymir's body, uh, Odin and his brothers kind of spill it into the air, and Ymir's flesh becomes what we know today as the earth, his blood becomes the oceans, his bones become the mountains, his hair becomes the trees, brains become the clouds, you kind of get the idea. His skull becomes the heavens, and his eyebrows are even turned into Midgard, which is the land that humans inhabit. Uh, so basically, Ymir is, is torn apart, and this is where the creation of the entire universe begins. Uh, what I find interesting about this whole story is that uh, I've, I've already mentioned that the Jotna are, are kind of seen as the antagonists of Every Norse uh, story in Norse mythology, they're kind of uh, essentially evil, and mankind is descended from these beings, and even Odin himself is part uh, Jotnar. So it's almost like we all, we're all sort of innately good, in a sense, but we have this element, all of us within us, that's a little bit dark and, and evil, so... I don't know, I just find that, that interesting, that, that nobody, not even the gods, are entirely pure. So yeah, that's the, the story. And I guess what's interesting now is I'll just kind of end by talking about the gods in general. And there is something interesting to this story as well, because as you're probably already familiar, especially if you've been listening to my podcast, there is a pantheon of gods. So Norse mythology is not just one god, there's, there's many gods. Okay, fair enough. But if you've got this pantheon of gods, wouldn't you just sort of have them all grouped together? Like, that would sort of naturally make sense, no? But this is not the way it is in Norse mythology. So the gods are actually divided up into two groups. There's the Aesir and there's the Vanir. And even more to that, the Aesir are kind of positioned as the more dominant group. And the Vanir is almost like a subgroup in a way. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit strange. Why would you make this delineation? It could be, I mean, there's a very famous war that is described between the Aesir and the Vanir, and this would have been something that these, I'm going to call them Germanic people from millennia ago, um, would have been would have been a part of their life war, so it's, it's not surprising that this would have been mirrored in their mythology as well, and obviously if you're going to have a war, you need two feuding groups. So this could be one reason to have two groups, uh, but what most scholars seem to think, and I would fall into this camp as well, is that perhaps when we look in a little bit more detail behind the Aesir and the Vanir, perhaps there's a real story behind this. And we've already seen in some of the sagas that 
even when things are fantastical and, and not really true, there's still an element of truth behind them. And up until there was evidence uncovered of the Norse settlement at Lanzo Meadows, for example, there was no evidence that the, the Vikings had actually been to North America. And you always had these stories that existed, the saga of the Greenlanders, Eric the Red's saga, that said, yeah, the Vikings did actually go to North America and settle there. But a lot of people did think that <laughs> that's crazy. Like the Vikings were in Scandinavia. Are you telling me that they went all the way across the Atlantic, all the way to North America and settled there? Uh, seems a little bit far-fetched, but obviously it turned out to be the truth. And even if you think of it yourself, if you're writing a fiction story and you completely make up the plot yourself and the characters yourself and you write the whole thing from start to finish, even though the entire thing is made up, I'm sure that some of your characters would be based on real people that you have encountered or heard about or that you know. Some of the plot lines, I'm sure, would have been based on events that you were aware of or maybe that you even experienced yourself. So even in a completely fictional setting, there would be elements of truth behind your story. So it doesn't surprise me either that it could be that this war between the AC and the Vanna rep represents a real event that occurred, the gods know how long ago, millennia ago. Um, what we can glean from the information available to us that could represent real uh, history or real events, first of all, we've got two groups. And, well, I should describe actually who's in which group. What's sort of interesting is that the Vanir are not really described in a lot of detail. Um, there are actually only three gods that are described as being officially Vanir gods, and they are Njodhra, and he is a sea god, he's sort of associated with wealth and crop fertility. He also has two children, Freya and Freya, and uh, Freya is a god of fertility, of peace. Freya is also a goddess of fertility, of love, of war, and she's also associated with magic. So these three are described as being Vanir. Also Heimdall, he is very heavily linked with the Vanir, let's put it that way. Um, there's a very strong association. There's a there's a stanza in one of the poems, I can't remember the exact wording now, but it was basically, they gave an adjective to describe Heimdall, and they said that Heimdall is, insert adjective here, just like all the other Vanir, something like that. So it really heavily suggests that, that Heimdall was, was also a member of the Vanir. And Heimdall, he's, uh, he's sort of the watchman of the gods. And it's said that he has very good sight, exceptional hearing. He can hear the hair growing on a sheep. Um, so he's the perfect watchman for the guards. He stands guard. Um, he's got a large horn that he can sound whenever there's trouble approaching at Asgard. And he kind of yeah, watches over the rainbow bridge, Bifrost. So these, I would say, are the four gods that we know were Vanir, and then there's obviously more that uh, there are some tentative suggestions that they were also Vanir, so I'm sure there were more, but it's uh, these would be, I'd say, the four that we're fairly certain of. In the other group, the Aesir, this is basically all the other gods, so Odin, Thor, um, all of them. You can kind of see, based on what these gods represent, perhaps it's, a, it's an indication of what the people were like as well. So for example, with Njodr, with Freya, Freya, these are all fertility gods. And there's a there's a link there that perhaps the Vanir people were more of like a, a farming culture. 
more stationary, yeah. more settled, more peaceful. Whereas the Aesir, with Odin and Thor, perhaps they were a bit more warlike. They were probably a nomadic people, um, the Aesir people. Yeah, more prone to war, fighting, hunting, that sort of thing. How the war started, so again, if we can glean something from the Prosetta, from the sagas, from Norse mythology, uh, there is an instance where Freya brings Seether, which is the magic, to the Aesir, so she's credited with that. And this magic, Seether, is, is met with suspicion from the Aesir. They're suspicious of it, they're wary of it, it's seen as potentially a little bit dangerous. Uh, so it could be that there was a member of the Vanir people that infiltrated the Aesir people, or maybe intermarried, or somehow joined this other culture and brought with it their own culture, which was treated with suspicion, as I said, and this could have been the basis for a misunderstanding, or, yeah, this could have been the basis for a war between the two cultures. Alternatively, maybe this, maybe the Aesir just became aware of the Vanya through this uh, intermarriage, through this intermingling, but one way or the other, it seems like the Aesir people attacked the Vanir people, and it also seems fairly clear that the Vanir people defended themselves quite well at the start. This is how they're described in uh, the, the the war between the Aesir and the Vanir. It's described that they defended themselves very well, so I can imagine that if this sort of warring tribe did attack this more farming culture, perhaps the form, farming culture were able to defend themselves quite well initially, Eventually, there is a truce made in the war between the Aesir people and the Vanir people, and hostages are exchanged. So we get some of the Vanir gods gods going over to the Aesir side, some of the Aesir going over to the Vanir. Um, so this could represent a real event as well, perhaps, where a truce was made and hostages were exchanged. Uh, but it does seem like whatever happened, the end result was that the Vanir people were sort of absorbed into the Aesir culture, because... There are certain things described that the Vanir people did, such as uh, incest was, was popular amongst their culture, and this was completely abolished by the Aesir people. So it seems like they amalgamated, and both cultures were kind of still recognized, but certainly the more dominant culture was the Aesir culture. And yeah, perhaps this represents real events. Uh, the only other kind of clues that we could maybe get from this is to look at the etymology behind the names Vanir and Aesir. So Vanir etymologically goes back to the word friends. So it's kind of, uh, I've been calling these people the Vanir people. Surely they didn't call themselves that. But it's probably a name that was given to them by the Aesir. And it's definitely a positive name. And it shows that potentially once these two cultures came together and amalgamated, that it was friendly and peaceful, that they did uh, survive peacefully together. Aesir, on the other hand, just translates into gods. Uh, so it, it relates back to that word. It doesn't translate, sorry, but etymologically it's related to the word gods. So these gods are the gods. In other words, this seems to be the culture that dominated. Their gods are the, the real gods, and the Vanir are uh, <laughs> their friends, in a sense. So this is the reason why there's a little bit of distinction, I suppose, between which gods are more prominent, which ones are, are less prominent. Uh, but they're all gods, and in the sagas, in Norse mythology, when we talk about the Aesir, we're also talking about the Vanir. So they get absorbed into this term as well. So 
Yeah, it's interesting for me to look back. Maybe this is an indication of something that happened many, many millennia ago. It's really hard to say. It's, it's complete speculation. But uh, yeah, it does seem like there was a distinction still made between the new people and the, the, uh, the old people, the Asia and the Vanir, but that they lived in harmony. And I think that's about where I'm going to leave things for today. So as I said, this is just a, a really just scratching the surface of, of what could be explored on this topic. I mean, this topic as well, let alone an episode, this could be an entire series I could do just on the creation myth in Norse mythology. But we need to stop somewhere, and I think this is a good spot to stop. Um, in the next episodes, I am going to focus specifically on certain gods, and the way that I'm going to do that is actually I'm going to follow the days of the week. And uh, if you want to learn more about that, then just tune into the next episode. But until then, if you're a fan, if you're an agent, if you're a publisher, then uh, I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch by writing to vikingstoryfaq at outlook.com. That's vikingstoryfaq. Email is the best way to reach me. And once again, thanks for listening. Hope you're going to enjoy the new season. And Q Thor's Thunder. <laughs>